This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of experience who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips, proven frameworks, and share ways to help you delight your customers. Today my guest is Dr. Gary David, sociology professor at Bentley University. And this episode, well, let me just say it'll be different. Gary goes deep and he makes you think, and this episode will have you doing just that. He shares what he learned from his dissertation of an inner city Detroit immigrant-owned liquor store and the impact of making emotional connections even in contentious situations. We then look at, is perception reality? His answer may not be what you think. And then he shares the influences our own expectations formed by things like TikTok and Amazon Prime, what CX leaders should be aware of as those expectations get formed. Let's jump right in. So I am incredibly excited about my guest today, Gary David, who has an interesting background. Gary has an academic background. He is a professor at one of the best business schools, in my opinion, in the country, Bentley University. And he comes to us with like all this, these incredible credentials in sociology, he got his master's, he got a doctorate in sociology. And then at some point, he got really in, interested in experience, experience and experience design. And so cool to have someone with an academic background uh, sharing in this conversation. In particular, we're going to peel back the onion today on an aspect of the customer experience and what delights customers in a way that uh, often we don't talk about. And that is this concept of perception and, and in particular, what impacts a customer's perception. Gary studies this uh, from the standpoint beyond, you know, beyond just customers, but experience in general, how people experience things in this world and how they react to it. Um, and so we're going to dig into someone who's done some research, who has a little bit of knowledge on it to help us uh, better design, better deliver, better execute on experiences for our customers so we can earn their loyalty and their trust. So with that, um, Gary, I'm going to, first of all, welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Thanks for being here. And like I shared, you've got the, you know, master's, a doctorate, sociology expert, um, and sociology is clearly connected, but how do you go from there into the world of customer experience? Well, I think it's very rare to have somebody say, we're so excited to have an academic here today. <laughs> it's not typically the response that, that we have. And deservedly so, because often there's a huge divide between what academics study and how they talk about it and the world in which it can be used. And one of the things that as an applied and clinical sociologist, I try to pride myself in and why I'm involved in CXPA and consulting and podcasting, live streaming, is to render the academic actionable 
to a broader audience, right? So it's how do we take what we know from a social science perspective or what we have discovered or think we know from a social sciences perspective and then actually activate it to accomplish whatever it is we want to accomplish in an applied perspective. So that's that's the you know the main thing about how I got involved in you know knowing you and CXPA and doing consulting work on experience strategy and experience design. But it's always been my interest. It's like, well, why do we study these things if we can't use them? And to me, sociology is one of the most useful disciplines to study in school, which is why I got the master's, got the PhD to be an academic, but really to do work with that knowledge, which I'm just lucky to be at a university like Bentley University, which affords me the opportunity. Mm. Okay. All right. So there's the link. Um, just, and also from, from speaking to you in the past, I, I can tell, like me, you're a curious person. Yeah, tend to be, to my detriment sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if people were listening here, and let's just say they're new to the world of customer experience, or even if they've been around it a while, coming from your seat as really your background, we just talked about it, but what it, why do you believe that CX could be or is a brand differentiator? So, you know, it's, I started my work in this space back in the 1990s. And at the time we didn't have, there was no word customer experience. We talked about service encounters and my dissertation work was in Arab owned liquor stores in Detroit. Now for those old enough to remember the Rodney King verdict mm -hmm. and the violence that erupted around Korean owned stores. And I was looking at this going, well, why, you know, what's the connection between what happened to Rodney King, you know, yeah. after his car was stopped and he was beat by police officers between that and Korean owned stores and immigrant owned stores more broadly in African American or black areas. Like what is this connection? Hmm. And there was a lot of theories about, you know, macroeconomic issues and uh, cultural divides and all this other stuff that dealt with perception. But I was interested in what was going on. Now for, for your listeners, you can think about customer experience as a perception that people have from the interactions and encounters with a company's products, goods, services, blah, blah, blah. Well, there's an interaction there. So I was interested in the interactions. So I went into the stores and I'm a conversation analyst. I studied the interactions. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was how boring most of my data was. <laughs> it was just <laughs> mind-numbingly boring. People yeah. would come in, they would purchase something and they would leave. And I have hours upon hours of videotape. And I also worked in stores. I videotaped what was happening in the stores and analyzed this data. And I have hours and hours and hours of people doing quote unquote, nothing but buying something and leaving, which is on the face of it, pretty hard thing to write a dissertation around if all you're doing is looking for problems. Hmm. But in the ability to deliver products in highly contentious environments, lied the essence, the importance of the study, which was people can find ways of connecting with one another, despite all the other impediments and barriers that might exist. Hmm. And that's very much a CX related topic. And what's more is I found people developing relationships in highly contentious environments. So all of my work I've done since then 
has primarily been around how people develop positive relationships, even in the moment, in environments that can be highly contentious and can be prone to conflict, whether it be call centers, software development teams distributed around the world, immigrant-owned liquor stores, um, police interrogations. That's all work I've done around how people form these moments that matter, these connections in these environments where it should be really difficult to do so. Hmm. So you you have taken almost really an ex extreme environment right. and studied it, whereas most businesses don't don't have to deal with that kind of environment, but in many cases still struggle with making an emotional connection with their customers. I think that you know what counts as an extreme environment is a matter of perception. Mm -hmm. I have one dog who's from Puerto Rico who is loving the weather right now when it's 90 degrees. I have another dog who's a black lab that's 90 pounds who is absolutely wilting in the weather and cannot wait for winter, at which time the Puerto Rican dog shivers and is underneath like three layers of covers. <laughs> so what constitutes an extreme environment is you know, largely in the eye of the beholder. And mm. I think that in any call center, in any counter in engagement, in any situation in dealing with any customer, there's a potential for it to go wrong. And I was just in a meeting with a potential client where it went wrong over something that I felt was relatively innocuous and the other person clearly didn't. So the question that becomes, how do we build trust? How do we build rapport? How do we build connection in those spaces in which the cards are stacked against us? And by understanding the extreme environments, we can pull nuggets or kernels out and leverage those in everyday environments. Mm. Okay, Re really interesting. <clears throat> and, and I'm interested in knowing, um, were you able to pull, like were there some common themes um, when you went to Detroit and studied those liquor stores and those in in interactions? Absolutely, one of the things that I would, I would notice are the ways in which people at the counter would reorient the relationship with the person to whom they were speaking in a way that aligned them interactionally. What do I mean by this? Someone yes. walked, and this is an actual case. Someone walks in, how much are a pack of cigarettes? And this will let you know how old this data is. You know, so the person behind the counter says $3.50, which is absurd today. I think they're like $10 or something like that. Oh my gosh. $3.50. And the person says, you know, why, you know, I thought they were $3.25. Why are they so expensive? And the person behind the counter says, you know, the government always sticking it to us. That little bit of work right there is pretty ingenious because it completely realigns the interaction from a you, you know, us and them customer worker mm, to a yeah. we, us, we people against the government. Right. right. And so now based on this goes back to social attribution theory and social identity theory. So there is theory behind this the person who did it doesn't know the theory but we can point to why that works using social attribution theory social identity theory about how we when we orient to each other on an intergroup basis mm -hmm. it changes our perception of one another versus if we orient to each other on an intra-group or a we basis it changes us to be more favorable or give the benefit of the doubt more and we can see this happen all the time so can we see people in call centers do this alignment work where they realign themselves with the customer 
and use the company as a foil to take down antagonism or conflict. Right, so it's a yeah. very, very basic principle that we know from social psychology. Another example would be the ways in which repeated encounters can build rapport. So a person comes in to buy lottery tickets, to buy soda or pop, as we say in Detroit, where I was doing this work. Mm -hmm. um, they come in every day for very short periods of time and they build familiarity through these patterns, right? And through that familiarity, they develop rapport and and relationship and i see this happening all the time now why does this matter like in a call center well how many call centers route people to the next available agent who no matter who they are versus an agent that you can build familiarity with hmm. right or right. to what extent you know do we leverage make part of you know do we give agents time at the end of a call to put some information about that customer into a crm so that the next person who gets that person can orient to something that happened in the past to increase that familiarity. So what would you, what would you say, uh, because I, I had involvement with the call center at the last place where I, where I was, and clearly the contact center is um, a primary way to get the pulse of what your clients are feeling across the enterprise. Right. Um, but one of the things I heard over the nine years I was there, and it's not just where I was, which was a bank, but it's many contact centers is we, we don't have time to put in a code. Um, we don't, for example, they called it a wrap code, but it was a code that uh, identified the reason for the call. Right. And we, that, that would take less time than what you're talking about. Right. Um, and they didn't have time to do that because they were always behind, concerned about wait times, concerned about abandoned rates and drop calls. What would you say to leadership who said, who, who would say, hey, you know, my people, I just don't have enough bandwidth and my people don't have time to write in that little note about someone. That's because they're not giving the people the time. I mean, like, well, why, what, what are you measuring? I saw this with a call center when I was doing mm -hmm. a consulting project, redesigning their training program. And I was listening to calls. I was interviewing the people who were doing the calls and they would say, you know, we, we are kept to the only calls that we are evaluated upon are those who last longer than three minutes or whatever number it was which was a great motivator to keep the calls under three minutes, not a right. great motivator to deliver good customer experience. And when the managers or the leaders would say, well, we're doing that for customer experience, I would say, well, where's your metric that, that demonstrates that three minutes is linked to higher customer experience? You don't have it. The reason why you're keeping in the three minutes is because you don't wanna hire more people to handle your call volume. The reason why you have a lot of call volume is that you're having product problems with your, your production. I mean, there's a lot of other problems that are taking place organizationally that then gets put on that one moment between the customer and the, and the call center agent. And that the reason why you don't have the time is that you're not prioritizing that time to do that thing, which you say is important, but you're not measuring as important, right? Yeah. So how are we aligning what we say we want with the measures we are measuring, the things we are measuring? That would be like the first thing. I would think about, and I would, you know, part of my research process as a researcher and as a consultant, and, you know, from the time of my dissertation, when I was working in the, the liquor stores is you got to be there to understand what's happening yeah. and listening to the calls is fine. It gets you closer, but there's no substitute for being there 
And even to the extent that if you can work the calls, now this is, this is a, a goal that's not always achievable, but we have this notion called unique adequacy in the kind of sociology I do is that you wanna have the competence that a member of the group you're studying has to perform their tasks or duties or roles. And the way you do that is by doing those tasks, duties and roles. So you can really understand from their perspective what it is that's standing in the way of the things that you want them to do. Yeah, you just reminded me of, uh, but there was just so much time packing what you just said. Um, but you just reminded me of um, uh, early on, uh, we had the executives go through and do a visit to the call center um, and put on the headset and listen in on all the calls. And what they noticed wasn't just the listening of, of the calls, uh, but they noticed that the call center reps had at least six or seven different systems that they had to go through to get an answer. Yep. And two or three of them were asynchronous. Yep. So the client is waiting for an answer. Um, oftentimes, you know, when you think about the business, you know, I was in, which is not liquor, but money, because it was a bank. Um, it's, Im it's immediately emotional. Like I can't get my money. What do you right. What are you talking about? I can't get an answer for where, where's my statement? Why? So, um, so to your point, um, you know, there, there is a, there is hardly a better way for people than to walk in the shoes of the people or of the, of the customers who you're serving. Right. And, and also something you just made me think of is something I saw in this client that I was redesigning their training program. I was listening to these calls. I would hear, the call the contact center workers say something like, I have to go into the system. And I would say to the workers, I would say, um, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like, well, I have to go into the system. Yeah, I got that. But like, what does that actually mean? What lay out the steps that's that are involved in going into the system? And they would lay out this complicated process. And I would say, Well, how do you expect your customer to know that? They have no idea what going into the system means. Mm -hmm. they, they have no idea what I have to go ask somebody what's involved. What was involved in this one place was a person had to leave their desk, walk down to another part of the building, go right. find the person, get their attention, ask them, walk back. Right. I mean, there was this whole thing. Yeah. And I said, well, why don't you tell your customers what you're doing? Yeah. And they said, well, you know, I don't think, it, I didn't think it was important. Well, you don't think that that amount of effort is important to your customer. I mean, let them know what's going on. Yeah. Let them know what's happening, unpack it for them so that they're familiar and aware with what you're trying to do on their behalf and the struggles you're having to accomplish what to them might seem like a simple goal. Right. Because in the silence, they write stories. Absolutely. Pretty sure they're not favorable to your company. There's a great book that I just love that I use in my dissertation called Improvised News by a sociologist named Tamatsu Shibutani. And it's a sociology of rumor. And one of the key takeaways from that book is that if people don't have an explanation as to why something's taking place, they will make one for themselves. Yeah. And rumor as a social effort, right? As a collective effort to make sense of something. And typically they aren't gonna do it in a way that casts you in a favorable light, especially if they see you, the company as the other. Right. So right. looking at this sociology of rumor, we can see how giving people an account, a reason as to why it's taking place. Now it's up to them to accept it or not, right. but at least you can create the opportunity for them 
to understand on your terms versus constructing an account on their terms, which right. often is not going to work in your favor. Right, right. So two, two more things I want to unpack on what you just said. No, for, first of all, we will include some of these great references that Gary's yeah. sharing in the show notes. Uh, so don't, don't worry read, about it. Some are reading this. Yes. Um, and two is um, one of the things we could spend a whole nother podcast on is this misalignment or right. lack of alignment of what the leadership desires and what people are getting recognized and rewarded for. Right. So if you're looking at a KPI that that is the number of minutes on a call and you're measuring them and these illustration that Gary shared was, you know, we're, we're going to notice everything that's over three minutes. You're sending this message that we don't want you on the phone for over three minutes, which can, doesn't have to be, but can often be in direct conflict with the goal of satisfying or driving loyalty in, in your customer base. Right. There was this one call that I remember from listening to the calls that this client gave me when I was constructing this training. And by the way, I was listening to the calls, not to find out what people were doing wrong. I was listening to the calls to find out what people were doing well. Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand the competencies that their workers already had that was under acknowledged and underappreciated and not identified because that's, you always, you always want to start with assets. I have a five point framework on how to connect organizations internally. And the first one's assets always mm -hmm. start with assets. And there was this one call in particular where this person had an interesting affect to his speech. The call went on maybe for eight minutes or nine minutes. And when I was playing parts of this call, people reacted somewhat negatively, dismissively. They kind of laughed at this. Oh, yeah, we know that person. That's, you know, that's how he speaks and whatever, whatever. And they were kind of negatively evaluating it. Then I said, but listen to the customer. What's the customer's experience? And they said, wow, the customer actually seems to be you know, enjoying it, you know, connecting with, working with, communicating with the, the, the employee. I'm like, yeah, exactly. So you can't dismiss this person for being a long call when you say what's important is the customer experience because that sounds like a good customer experience to me. Right. So listen beyond the metrics and listen yeah. to what actually is taking place. Yes, because the, the metrics, you know, they, they tell part of the story. They do. But not all this, not the whole story. And which is a great segue. Um, one, one thing I do want to say before we, we segue into that, that last thought is if you're listening and you're a CX practitioner um, or a CX pro and you're listening to this idea of letting them know what, what you're doing to solve their problem, um, and including if it's laborious um, and challenging so that you can be transparent, so you can build trust with clients. Also, we're, we're not saying don't go, don't go understand what's going on upstream to cause the problem in the first place. Right. right? Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. So, um, so that, you know, whatever it is mapping the client's journey or whatever we need to do to understand that. Well, you, you brought up an interesting, uh, you brought up an interesting topic about what the client's feeling in relation to this call center person who's just being real, it sounds like right. with, with the other person. And, and it leads me to um, some people may be aware of this definition, but I've used this definition of customer experience for years and you kind of, kind of paraphrase it. So maybe we're talking the same language here, but I want, I want to dig into this as well, because it really relates to some of the work that you've been doing, which is the Gartner definition. Right. And 
I'll read it, which Gartner defines customer experience as the customer's perceptions and related feelings yeah. caused by the one-off and cumulative effect of interactions with the suppliers, employees, systems, channels, or products. Yep. So I know you've done research and have an interest in perceptions and how that impacts people's experiences when they are customers or in other life situations. But let's start with the Gartner definition and the idea that it's not what happens when you're the customer, but it's how you perceive what happens. Am I right? I have, I have some problems with the focus on just perception because I study interaction. Mm. And I, I'm, again, a conversation analyst. I focus on what is taking place. It doesn't mean that perception is not important, but it also means that interaction is important. And very few companies are engaging with the interaction. People are starting to using speech analytics software to a certain point, it's becoming more scalable, but you don't need to listen to every call to study mm -hmm. the interaction, right? You can, as I did with this one client and I've done before, you can take a subset of calls, a sampling, a, syst a systematic stratified sample if you want, a random sample. You can do that and then make that regular part of your process by listening to the calls with the people who are on the calls to understand what is going on from their perspective. So I think that there's an underappreciation, underutilization of the actual interactions. When I've talked with clients who say, we're really struggling with capturing the voice of the customer. Do you record your call center calls? Yeah, we do. So you literally have the voice of the customer, but yet you say you're struggling to capture the voice of the customer. Right. So what they're saying is not that they don't have the voice of the customer, they have to know what to do with it. Hmm. They don't know how to handle the qualitative data. So part of what I teach and part of what I consult in is how to do qualitative data analysis and qualitative data management. So like, what do we do with this? The perception become, does become important though, um, because there's a great quote by W.I. Thomas, who's a sociologist. If people perceive things as real, they'll be real in their consequences. That's what's important about that is it's not that if people perceive things as real, they become real. Perception is not a reality. I can perceive that COVID doesn't exist. It doesn't make it not exist. I can perceive mm. that climate change doesn't exist, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be, you know, hotter than ever. And there's water in my basement because it flooded again. So perception doesn't create reality. There is a reality that has real effects. That's why it's important to study the interaction. But reality, but the perception does create real outcomes because it affects behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think it's really important to separate that reality, that perception is reality and perception impacts reality. It's a subtle distinction, but a really crucial one. Because if all you think is perception is reality, then that's all you need to look at is just perception. Mm -hmm. If you think perception influences behavior but is based upon some event then you need to study the event itself along with the perception in order to understand how those two are related to one another yeah yeah so it's it's really understanding not just what you're hearing from customers um what you're listening to what data they're sharing but also what are they actually going through at each touch point that they interact with you and, and those things might be part of what you're doing and it might be part of something else that's influenced them. And this book I'm writing right now with my podcast co-host, Adam Gamwell, we have a chapter on expectations. Mm. 
um, that's not in the Gardner definition, right? But how much of expectations influences perception of the interaction? And it's not just expectations of what they think about you, but it might be expectations based on their experiences with others in a similar space or some other space. You know, people are influenced by um, their experience based on what they deal with through Amazon Prime, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, what my students might be, expect a certain level of engagement of, for me online based on what they see in the YouTube videos or their content creators on Twitch or TikTok. So if, if I'm teaching classes through making videos that they can watch, I'm competing not against other universities and their content, I'm competing against TikTok and YouTube because that's where my students' expectations are in terms of online content. So expectations matter. Then as you talked about memories, it's not just mm. what they perceive, but it's what they remember, mm -hmm. right? Of that event. Right. And then it's also the emotion connected to it, but that is also this other element of not just me as an individual remembering, but it's how we as a collective remember together. So say more, say more about the collective piece. Well, you know, this is where sociology comes in. A lot of what we've been talking about is might be thought of as a psychological. Hmm. But what about the sociological? What about the collective? Um, if you look at emotion, we, 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 we feel things at, to a greater extent when we feel them with others. Hmm. Okay. We remember things to a greater extent when we remember them with others. We experience things more strongly when we experience them with others. And so one of the things in experience design from a social perspective is not just how do we connect with the customer as an individual, but how we connect with that individual in relation to other customers together. Right. So how might we create using design language? How might we create a shared communal experience? There was a great, um, this is like a little bit off track, but I write about it in the book. For those of us old enough to remember the band Oasis in the 1990s, they were the biggest band in the world. And they had a series of concerts in Nebworth, England. And in watching the documentary Oasis Nebworth, people talked about that it was right before cell phones became ubiquitous as this medium through which we experienced the world. By that, I mean videotaping. You're not watching the band, you're watching the screen, watching the band. And right. people remarked that we didn't have that. So we were all in the moment together. And because we were all experiencing it together, we weren't experiencing it individually, putting it on our Instagram, our TikTok, our Facebook, our YouTube. We were all just in the moment together. It created this feeling of connectivity. And this, there's sociological theory, obviously, behind how that happens, how we create community through shared experience. And that is kind of like yeah. this. You talk about, you know, brand ambassadors it's when we feel we're connected to a brand not just ourselves but in connection with others that really elevates a brand and elevates an experience hmm. really really fascinating i you know you don't often think about it that way when you're just trying to make an, an experience better improve it for a client um the collective piece of it really interesting yeah i think so and this is where you know uh a, a really nice book called The New Chameleons, which was um, just published by um, uh, God, Michael Solomon. Uh, Michael, Dr. Michael Solomon, who has a background in social psychology. He was appeared on our podcast, Experience by Design podcast. 
and he talked about rather than focusing on rather than marketing to people as individuals, we need to market to them as identities. And you know, I, these identities, these social identities, are fluid, meaning that they come up at any next moment. So, how does a bank, how might a bank market to customers not as a particular segment, but as a particular identity, and then connect with that identity so that it resonates not just with them as an individual, but as a group. And then they share it with others as members of that group. And that connects people to that brand because now it's not just something I chose to do, but it's something that we chose to do together. Hmm. And this creates brand movements, basically. Yeah, brand movements. Well, does this connect? um, Because you hear more and more about brand identity and you hear more and more about mission or purpose companies where you know companies stand for something and they they have been more more and more um i guess vocal and purposeful about sharing what their corporate mission is and what they stand for what kinds of social things they support or and that kind of thing is this connected to that i think so for sure and we you know it's been interesting one of the things i'll talk with my students at you know a private business school is that an interesting, an interesting aspect of this moment now is that companies are being looked to or looked upon to fill the void provided by state governments. What do I mean by that? If you look at Florida or if you look at other states in which there was recently a ban on abortion, however you think about abortion, that's not the point. The point is you have companies who say we will pay for employees to travel to another state to have elective surgeries or procedures, including this. Right. That's interesting. Um, they don't have to do that. And by the way, most companies aren't, but there are a number of well-known companies who are around quote unquote uh, uh, racial justice movements. And I say quote unquote, cause it's a broad category, but whether it's George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, whether it's gay pride, whether it's, you know, you name it, Companies are being looked upon to not just say something, but do something to take action. And they are being called upon not just by their customers, but by their employees. Hmm. Yeah. And their employees, Gen Zers, are looking to employers as, as kind of the tip of the spear, so to speak, in these social justice areas that may have nothing to do with their products, may have nothing to do with their primary purpose as a company in terms of what they produce or what services they provide. But nevertheless, the employees see as as an important indicator of company culture. And customers may be increasingly viewing it that way as well. Doesn't mean that customers are just shopping with you know, not, are not shopping on price or reputation or preference, but it's a factor. And if companies aren't in that conversation, it's a factor that at various times might have greater prominence and companies need to think about what they might be missing out on as a strategy, but also in terms of their verbal commitments to these issues. So your mission statement says you're committed to this thing, but yet you're not doing this in terms of action. People are looking for authenticity and they're seeing it as basically doublespeak, as being disingenuous. Mm. If the mm-hmm. action doesn't mac- match the verbiage. Mm-hmm. So they're out of alignment. Yeah, it goes back to alignment. 
Yeah. Do your do your do your words match your deeds? Well, really interesting. We covered a lot of interesting things. I, I think I want to go back to the the area of perceptions and mm -hmm. the role that expectations plays in the the expectations and and all that. How that all rolls up to the customer experience. Um, what advice would you have? for either a business leader who's running a company, running an organization, or a CX leader who's uh, leading the CX efforts in that organization, when it comes to expectation setting and it, as it relates to perceptions? I think it, it's be really interesting to get a sense of expect, what are, what are your customers' expectations? And you, know, you can obviously segment that based on personas or whatever kinds of classifications you have for your customers what are their expectations hmm. um where and where do those expectations come from do they come from you do they come from somebody at one of your competitors do they come from previous experiences do they come from something completely unrelated are there ways to set expectations you know as i tell my children you know make sure you set the bar really low because then it's easy it's easy to overcome you know, it's me being tongue in cheek about if you set expectations really low, then people will be surprised. Now, does that make for a sound business strategy? I don't know. Probably not. But if it comes to, you know, we see this now with customer wait times. I mean, how often are we at an airport? You know, the flight's delayed. You have no idea what to expect. Right? Right. Um, it doesn't mean that if, you know, if, if the experience was so bad that it met my bad expectations, Right, that that's a good thing, but it does mean people aren't going to be surprised. <laughs> are mm -hmm. they coming in with eyes wide open, or is it a bait and switch where you said you're going to give me one thing, and now I got another thing? So we need to be really careful with setting expectations, because I was just actually joking with someone the other day: is what if we set our marriage vows based on uh, realistic expectations? <laughs> the marriage way I, pro I promise for as long as we live till death to us part i'm like that's a big expectation yeah probably tough to deliver on and if you know if we if our spouses went back to our marriage vows and said i don't know based on the expectations i had at the very beginning i'm feeling like i, I on a scale of zero to ten i definitely would not recommend or at least i'm not i'm a neutral <laughs> yeah I'm passive i'm a passive yeah it might be passive definitely not promoted Definitely not a promoter. <laughs> obviously, we're not going to go on a marriage. Like, you know, I'll, I'll do my best, <laughs> but we'll see how it goes. Right. So we do set expectations high often, but it also means that we need to be honest with our expectations and apologize and be honest for why we failed to meet them hmm. as well. Own it. There was a great call I listened to where this customer was really irate just really irate that they weren't going to get a product in time. And the worker was trying to do her best job. And the, and the great moment was like an epic. The great moment was the customer said, who should I blame for this? Who do I blame for this? And the call center worker goes, you know what? You can blame me. I'll, I, it's my fault. I'll take responsibility. And you, could, you knew what was going to happen before it happened. The hmm. customer said, I don't want to blame you. You know, hmm. it's not a completely de-escalation. Yeah, they just needed a place to, to lay the blame. Mm. You know, that's why that's why scapegoating is in religious texts going way back. It's a long held tradition. Just, you know, where can I I just want to blame somebody? Where can I lay the fault for my expectations being not met? Mm -hmm. And then we can move on. But yeah. deflecting 
ain't going to do it because it's going to keep going and keep going, and escalate and escalate. And we can, we can manage these things interactionally, which is why it goes back to studying the interactions because that's where it happens. Yeah. That's ground zero. There's a lot that happens before it. There's stuff that happens after it, but capturing those interactions becomes a really crucial part. Yeah. Well, well said, well said, really good tips. I think, um, you know, what, first of all, where are we now? What, what are your customer expectations and take a look at them maybe by segment, looking at different personas. Um, how do you, how, how, and, and where should you set the expectations with your customers? And then when things don't go wrong, don't go right. And there's always stuff that happens, you know, own it, own up to those mistakes and, uh, have a culture that is empathetic to customers in a way that says, you know, we, uh, we apologize for this. We know it's got to be tough on you. I just right? had that moment with, um, with actually Verizon because I lost internet for like cable for like two days, right. longer story, but yeah. I had tried to get, tried to fix things and tried to get, I just wanted a person. I just wanted a person. And right. I was trying to get a person through their systems and it was just a nightmare. I finally got a person and I started my phone call with, does everyone there realize how horrible your online system is? And the person on the phone was like, oh my God, yeah, every, we all know, everybody knows. It's horrible. It's just yeah. the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I feel bad for you people because right. now you have to deal with me after being frustrated by all of that. She said, oh yeah, it's a nightmare. So yeah, it's, it's just horrible on all of us. And so I was setting up this moment where we could come together and align interactionally through this external enemy, which was the system. Yeah. And it allowed us to kind of move forward together in a way that was collaborative and productive and connected rather than disconnected. And one of the things that I might have done if I was Verizon in that moment is ask the question when the person comes online. Um, before we start, I just want to get a sense of what have you tried before talking to me to solve this problem? Hmm. And I could have said, well, I tried this, this, and this. And I could have said, yeah. I'm sorry that didn't go well. You know, the good news and bad news is that it goes well for nobody. So it's not you, it's us. I apologize. Let me see how I can help you now. Mm -hmm. So they didn't ask that question, but what if that question was asked before anything starts to set where the frustration and the expectations were before the call starts? Might be right. an interesting thing to experiment with and see what the impact is on the way the calls progress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, um, that, that's all fascinating. And I agree with you. It would be interesting if we took a, an approach, uh, but I'm really on both sides sometimes as a yeah. customer to say, how can we collaborate? Cause ultimately you want your problem solved, right? Absolutely. Right. So we both have a role. There's, it's a dyad. There's two parts to it. The customer has a responsibility. The employee has a responsibility and we need to create an environment in which we can collaborate and connect and work together to solve whatever problem there is. The challenge is very often companies have policies, procedures, and expect and measures that interfere with that. And so my job as a consultant, as a, as a teacher, as a writer, is to remove those barriers to allow people to connect, to facilitate their collaborative work, to accomplish the goals that they both have in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's a noble goal. 
Gary, I want to ask one thing that I ask uh, my guests, um, which may be a little different, but um, I know you'll be able to answer it, which is, um, was there a turning point in your life that changed the trajectory of how you approached your career? I, I think, you know, a turning point in my life would, you know, it's a really interesting question. I'm going to steal it. I think one of the, <laughs> one of the turning points would be what are the ways in which we can make people's lives better, right? That's one mm. of the, and when I went to grad, when I went to undergraduate, I wanted to be a clinical psychologist because I wanted to, I grew up in a chaotic household, a lot of challenges. I'm like, well, what are the things that I can do to make people's lives better by working with them as an individual? And then I found sociology. And then I was like, well, this can scale actually. Hmm. I can scale this because I can not just try to help individuals, but I can think about systems. I can think about not just changing individual perception or their interaction with whatever challenges they have, but how can we change systems? Hmm. And so it was recognizing that sociology has the ability to think in systemic ways, to address these underlying issues or barriers, impediments that will allow us to elevate experiences, elevate outcomes, across the system rather than just on individuals. So it was probably my first sociology class as, on, as a freshman. And it was purely by accident that I was ended up in this class and it just clicked. I was like, wow, so you can help people and not just persons. So let's try to help people and applied in clinical sociology and in experience design is about helping people have better experiences. And that's, that's, that's why I end up in this journey in my career. And I'm, again, I'm lucky enough to be at a business school like Bentley to e explore and pursue these things through podcasts, through blogging, through live streaming, through consulting and academic work as well to bring the scholarship from beyond the classroom and into the world. Well, cool. Well, so, so fascinating to have this dialogue with you. Um, today, we covered some really interesting things that um, not too many other guests will be able to bring to the table. So just so exciting. Thanks so um, much. How, if our, our listeners wanted to reach you, what would be the best way that they can connect with you? Yeah, there's a few. Um, I got to think about brand integration myself, but I you can always <laughs> listen to Experience by Design podcast, wherever you get podcasts, where we explore experience designs of all kinds, which includes customer experience, but other experience design areas beyond that. You can also uh, go to ethno-analytics.com for my blog, where I'm blogging regularly on a variety of different topics. And you can also reach out to me at Gary David at ethno-analytics.com. Uh, if you want to chat about anything I talked about today, uh, anything you read, anything you listen to or have any questions, uh, book recommendations, happy to just chat and connect. And I, would, uh, I would just add one more, GaryConnects.com for public speaking opportunities to talk more about this with your organization, your group. Always happy to have that opportunity to engage with broader audiences. So check out GaryConnects.com as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, and, and a reminder, um, these will be all on the show. The references we talked about today will be on the show, included in the show notes. Um, so thank you, Gary. What a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. No, thanks for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. You got it. 
Well, thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I want to ask you to do two things. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content. I don't want you to miss anything. And if you've gotten something out of this, share it with someone. Make sure they have access to all this content and all the other great content coming up. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.